Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Our text this morning is verses 2 through 15 of Matthew 11. I'd like to read those for you now as you follow along. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pray with me. Father, this is a challenging text. I pray for your illuminating spirit to come now and to open this text to our eyes, our minds, and our hearts so that we see here what Matthew intended for his readers to see. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The new title this morning as of, uh, as of yesterday, so I didn't make the, the print deadline, is Messianic Claims. Messianic Claims. And that takes us to this overarching question as we begin this morning. Why did Matthew write this gospel? I want to just kind of start today big picture because uh, we've been in the depths of Matthew. We had a break last week and and I think it would be good for us to just step back and and look at the the whole forest here for a few moments before we uh, get into it up close and personal. But why did he write this gospel? The simple answer is this. Matthew wants his readers to be 100% convinced that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah. But why does this matter? What's the big deal about Jesus being Messiah? Well, we need to define it. Messiah comes from a, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. And Christ is a transliteration of a Greek word. They're not really definitions. They're not really translations. They're just transliterations. Messiah comes from Messiah and Christ comes from Christos. But what does it mean? 
Messiah means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. This is a title, not a name. All right. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his primary title. And when we believe and we say we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph, is Messiah, we are believing volumes, volumes of theological truth. Messiah was promised, predicted, and pictured in the Old Testament, nearly every book of the Old Testament, there are 39 of them. Messiah would be the one who would come and put God on display through signs and wonders as the only one chosen, anointed, and authorized by God Himself to offer the kingdom to Israel. When we hear the word Messiah, we must link it to the nation of Israel. Messiah then would be God's appointed and anointed His appointed and anointed King of the Jews and thus Savior of the world, who when rejected by Israel became the suffering servant and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we say we believe and we believe Jesus is Messiah. We do not talk about Jesus as Messiah enough. We talk about Him and sing about Him as Lord and friend and Savior. And all of those things are right and true. But we do not talk and sing enough about Jesus as anointed one. When we say he's the anointed one, this speaks of his being chosen by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit without measure. So that he might fulfill the requirements for three particular offices. Offices that had been pictured and promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The office of prophet and priest and king. You see, the fact that Jesus was able to fulfill those three offices is all dependent upon him being, what? Messiah, anointed one. This is why he is known as Jesus Christ, not Jesus prophet. Not Jesus priest, not Jesus king, or even Jesus savior. Those are not the the titles and the words that we usually find in the Bible and that we usually say to refer to him. It's the fact that he is Messiah that makes all of those offices and roles possible. But it's even more than all of that. Because God loves to make and keep promises. Because this is true of the very nature of God. His promise then of the coming one was given prodigiously. Prodigiously. God then is pleased when we trust these promises and he is offended when we don't. Now think about it. If you were the all-powerful, all-sufficient God and dependent sinful creatures do not trust you, you're going to take that personal. I mean, we take it personal when people should trust us and they don't, right? It's, it's offensive. It's hurtful. Imagine how God feels. The one who is trustworthy. The one who is faithful to every promise. And he went to great lengths, did he not? To promise and picture and predict this coming one. And so when he came and people rejected him, God is offended at the highest level possible. 
In fact, God went to great lengths to promise and to send Jesus as anointed one. And as a result, he demands and he expects that we believe in him and that we give allegiance to him. This is what it means to say, I believe Jesus is Messiah. You want a concise definition of a Christian? It's simply this. It's someone who believes Jesus is Messiah. Christian. Little Christ. Believer in Christ. Now, of course, this belief, this trust, must be based on some knowledge, on some facts. It's not faith in faith. It's anchored. It's rooted. And that's what we're going to see today. So let's go back then to Matthew's gospel. And his aim in writing this gospel is that everyone who reads it would have 100% convinced faith that Jesus is Messiah. And let's review where we've been as we are finding ourselves in chapter 11 today. From the genealogy of chapter 1 and the virgin conception to his birthplace in Bethlehem as predicted in Scripture, to him being called out of Egypt, to his wilderness temptations and staring down the devil, to his relocation to Galilee for ministry, to his authoritative words of chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, to his authoritative deeds of chapters 8 and 9, to his sending out of 12 apostles to the 12 tribes of Israel in chapter 10, All of that while including over 20 Old Testament quotes and countless Old Testament echoes. Matthew has written everything up to this point to create Christians out of non-Christians. He wants the non-Christian to take up this writing, this story of Jesus, and by this point to have become convinced with irrefutable evidence that this is God's promised Messiah. He also wants to convince doubting Christians. Because Matthew is a Christian and he writes for Christians. He writes for the Christian church of his day. And he wants to convince those who are entertaining some moment of doubt, some struggle. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Matthew wants to dash those doubts. And he also wants to write to mature Christians. And he wants to take the faith of mature Christians and strengthen it and deepen it and and cause it to be so anchored and so unshakable that nothing could ever come against this faith in Christ. Matthew is writing to create and convince and strengthen Christians in a Christ-centered faith. Faith anchored to the person of Jesus. He writes to smash all doubts and to end all debate that the coming one has come. That the prophecies have been fulfilled. That God has delivered on his promise. And to say to every one of us, don't look for another. There is no one else to come. There is no other that can save Today's text highlights and illuminates all of this. In today's text, Jesus claims to be the Messiah in two ways. Number one, by connecting his actions to messianic prophecy. That's verses two to six. And number two, by connecting his forerunner to messianic prophecy. That's verses 7 to 15. So let's unpack these and see if our faith can be created or sustained. 
Number one, Jesus claims to be the Messiah here by connecting his actions to Messianic prophecy, verses 2 to 6. Now, when you first read this passage, you might think that it's about John the Baptist because he's mentioned frequently about eight times. But Jesus is also mentioned about eight times. But as you begin to read it and study it, you begin to see that Jesus is the one acting here. Jesus is the one speaking here. Jesus is the one in the driver's seat here. This is really about how John points to Jesus. This is really Jesus then making a claim through the opportunity that John presents to him. And the first claim he makes is he wants to connect his actions, his authenticating actions, to ancient messianic prophecy. Verse 2 says, now when John, John the Baptist, and the key words there are while imprisoned. Now we read about that back in chapter 4, that John had been put in prison. And while he's there in that terrible place, in that dungeon, in a place of unjust treatment, he does not deserve to be there. John hears of the works of Christ. There's no record that John ever saw a miracle of Jesus. There's no record that John ever heard the teaching of Jesus. I mean, John baptized him, and Jesus disappears. And that might have been the last time John saw him. And so now John has carried out with his ministry and course. He's become uh, persecuted for it. He's thrown in a dungeon for it. And he hears about what Jesus is doing out in Galilee. And so John sends word by his disciples. He still has his own followers. To bring a message and a question to Jesus, verse 3. And he says to him, this is John speaking to Jesus through these other men. John openly sharing his struggles and doubts. Are you literally the coming one? Coming one was an Old Testament title for Messiah. John is asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one? Or, this is so sad, right? Your heart just sinks. You just go, oh, John. (laughs) Or shall we look for someone totally different? Of all the ways Jesus could respond here, the way he chose was so beautiful and so comforting and so wise and so gracious. This is a sad setting for Jesus to make a claim to be Messiah. But as God turns all things together for good, he will use this sad setting and this sad struggle of John to make this proclamation. And we can understand where John is coming from. John is human. John is not infallible. John is sitting in prison and he's thinking to himself... Now, if he is the anointed one who comes to judge the world and to save Israel, why in the world is the forerunner sitting in prison? That's a fair question, right? I mean, that's legitimate. We can understand that. John here is experiencing failed expectations. And I'm sure prison can do that to a person. This is a moment of weakness. This is the low point brought on by suffering. What John was once 100% sure of, now not so much. This is the same John who said, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the same John who in chapter 3, before baptizing Jesus, says, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. 
What he was once could see with crystal clarity now is foggy and fuzzy, brought on by suffering. It's very human. It's very real. We can relate to this, can't we? And yet John's very human struggle here becomes a fertile ground for the strongest of messianic claims. Jesus, in answering, says, go and report. (laughs) Go and announce. The word report there is a word used often for preach. Proclaim, announce to John what you are hearing and what you are seeing. Because hearing is believing and seeing is believing. And then Jesus rattles off six actions that he is in the midst of performing. Five of them are physical and one is spiritual. They're highlighting the the kingdom conditions to come. Here are six authenticating actions in no particular order. And every single one of them is either a quote from or an allusion to the book of Isaiah. The ancient prophecy of Isaiah, which is at this point when Jesus refers to it, 700 years old. 700. 700. Isaiah made a prediction and a prophecy, and 700 years later, Jesus is fulfilling it. Listen to the verses. I just want to rattle these off for you. Just listen to the verses that are being quoted here in verse 5 or alluded to in verse 5. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. 35, 5, and 6. I am the Lord. I have called you, capital Y-O-U, in righteousness. I will, uh, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah 42, 7. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You will lie in the dust. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Isaiah 26, 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Isaiah 61, 1. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is going on here in verse 5 is a stupendous messianic claim by Jesus Christ. Hey, he didn't have a messianic complex. He was the Messiah. Here's what's happening. In a gracious response to John's doubt, Jesus connects... On the one hand, his authenticating actions and deeds that were verifiable and seen and heard. He connects that to messianic prophecy, to Old Testament scripture, so that all doubts are devastated. All doubts are laid low. 
This was the wisest possible answer to John. This is the most beautiful, precious, faith-creating way to answer his question. What is happening here then is the dual witness of unstoppable deeds resting on immovable Scripture. The combination of the two is unassailable. A 700-year-old prophecies that are being fulfilled before our very eyes? This is so critical that we understand that Jesus is making a messianic claim because, listen, you cannot have faith in Jesus as Messiah unless He claims it. What is our faith going to rest on? What is going to be the object of our faith, the basis of our faith? What's going to ground our faith? It is the fact that this man, Jesus, claimed to be Messiah. There's no messianic secret. He didn't wonder, he didn't go around wondering, is this my identity? This identity wasn't thrust upon him. This was not something he was trying to keep secret from the, the crowds. He's openly claiming it right here in Matthew eleven five. Messianic claims then, listen carefully, messianic claims, in other words, the word of God, lead to messianic faith. And it's these claims that will either create faith, because we are born again by the Word, or these claims will mature the faith that has already been created. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of what? Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Anointed One. What it means to be a Christian is you say this one and this one only is the anointed one of God who can fulfill every office that the world needs. Prophet, priest, and king. Here is a messianic claim to anchor our faith. So let's begin to apply this first claim of Jesus here in this text. He says in verse 6, Blessed is he... Who does not take offense at me. Verse 6 is a promise slash warning, right? He means John. He means John's disciples who are returning the message to John. He means his own disciples who are hearing him say it. He means us. Blessed, fortunate, happy, satisfied, fulfilled is he who does not stumble at me, take offense at me, apostatize from me, turn away in unbelief from me. Or to say it another way, stop looking for someone else. (laughs) There is no one else. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Like Peter, we need to say, when he says, do you want to go away too? We need to say, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There is no one else. Don't take offense at the singularity and the exclusivity of Jesus as Lord, Savior, and Messiah. Don't stumble over the stumbling block of Christ. Instead, I would say to hitch your faith trailer to the truck of God's Word, not the kite of your feelings. Like a kite, feelings are all over the place, and feelings can't be trusted. You can't trust how a kite is going to fly. That's faith in faith. 
And faith in faith is like a dog chasing his tail while living on nothing burgers and cotton candy. Think about it, it'll come to you. So stop looking and anchor your faith in the claim that Jesus made to be Messiah. And yet, yet, voice your doubts and your struggles to God and to mature Christians. Both can handle it. Jesus can handle your doubts and a mature Christian can handle your struggles. This text indirectly teaches us through John the Baptist that it's okay to doubt. It's okay to to express this. He didn't hide it. He didn't keep it to himself. He made it known publicly, not only to Christ, but to his own followers. What a humble man this was. He says in John, I must decrease and he must increase. This is John decreasing. We need to see in this text by the gracious response of Christ that he does not discard doubters. He didn't discard Thomas and he didn't discard John. He didn't throw them under the bus. He will come to John's defense. He will commend John, not condemn him. We can trust Jesus with our doubts and our struggles, and He's actually able to take them and use them to His own glory. He's able to take them and use them to His own ends. Praise the Lord. Jesus does not cast doubters away. So stop looking for someone else and and then voice your doubts and concerns. And when you are doubting, not if, but when you are doubting, I want you to do something else. I want you to examine your own messianic expectations. You see, John got in trouble because of his expectations. Things weren't playing out the way he expected them to play out when the Messiah would come. And we need to examine our own messianic expectations. When we face times of doubt, we need to ask ourselves, are my expectations biblical or are they worldly? Are my hopes based on an ironclad promise from God, thus saith the Lord, or are my hopes based on some wishful thinking of this world, some expectation of this world? You see, we all have these expectations of Christ, of who he is and what he's supposed to do for us. And John had those expectations, and his were disappointed, and so he fell into doubt as to the very person of Jesus. If we will examine our messianic expectations, and if we will make sure that they are biblical, this will equip us to not take offense at him. You with me? This will equip us to not take offense when he answers our prayer with a big, fat no. This will equip us to not take offense when life does not turn out for us as we hoped that it would. When our kids don't turn out as we hoped that they would. When when the job doesn't turn out as we hoped that it would. When the doctor's report doesn't turn out as we hoped that it would. We need to examine our own misguided messianic expectations at that point. And make sure that they are actually biblical. And then we will not take offense. When Jesus doesn't do for us what we think He should do for us, 
We won't take offense when we realize that faith in Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. Right? That we can say some magic incantation over and He's supposed to come out and meet all of our wishes and desires. No, saving faith rests on Jesus as Messiah, not that we're in the Messianic kingdom now. Okay? This is so critical. You can be saved from your sin by trusting Jesus as Messiah, not by trusting that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has not come. John had to learn the lesson. The apostles had to learn the lesson. Matthew's church had to learn the lesson. And we have to learn the lesson. The kingdom has not come. Manage your expectations. That is the first way Jesus claims here to be the Messiah. The second way is this. He connects his forerunner to messianic prophecy. First of all, he connected his authenticating acts to messianic prophecy. Now he connects his forerunner to the same In the first case, he used Isaiah, which, by the way, is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Isaiah. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm. But now he will turn his attention to the book of Malachi and connect prophecies of Malachi to the person and career of John the Baptist. And in doing so, he's making a claim, once again, I'm the coming one. I'm the Messiah. So we pick it up in verse 7. As these men were going away, John's disciples going back with Jesus answered, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, just in case the crowd thinks that John is weak and vacillating, just in case the crowd thinks that John has apostatized, Jesus will set them straight. He will commend John. He will praise John. Your Bible might say this is Jesus' tribute to John. And he will do so with the use of really one rhetorical question asked three times. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a vacillating reed flopping here and there in the wind? No. (laughs) These are rhetorical questions that expect initially the answer of a resounding no. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing, delicate clothing like those wear in king's palaces, clothing of linen and silk? (laughs) No. (laughs) He wore uh, camel's hair and ate grasshoppers. (laughs) Now, what did you go out to see? A prophet? A spokesman for God? Yes, absolutely. But one who is even more than that. There were many prophets, but he is even more and beyond them. Verse 10, what did you go out to see? Look at this. This is God the Father talking about God the Son. Talking to God the Son about John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger, literally angel. I send my messenger ahead of you. You is Christ who will prepare your way before you. This is his second claim then to be Messiah using Malachi 3.1. 
He reaches back into that book for divine support to say that John the Baptist, this man in prison who just asked this question, is in fact the trailblazer and the road paver for the Messiah. The one coming behind him is the one, the expected one. There is no one greater then than John. Wow, what a statement. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David. No one is greater than John because of his proximity to Jesus. Because of where John falls in redemptive history, in progressive revelation, because he is the forerunner of the Messiah, therefore there is no one up to his point in human history greater than him. He is humanly supreme. He is humanly superior. And as Jesus asserts John's greatness in that sense, he is in fact making the claim to be even greater, (laughs) to be the one and only. We could say it this way, John's greatness as forerunner is all dependent on who he runs before. Right? That's why Jesus goes on and says this shocking phrase in verse 11, Yet the one who is least or smallest or most humble in the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of Christ, which is the messianic kingdom, which is the millennial kingdom, It's all one and the same. He who is least in that place, in that time, in that era, is greater than John. You see, the one who is actually in the kingdom of Christ is greater than the forerunner to the kingdom of Christ. That makes sense. It's better to enter the promised land of the kingdom than to come to the border and announce it. It's better to be in the party than to be the mailman who delivers the invitation. It's better to come behind the works of Christ, behind the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the return and the judgment and the entrance of the kingdom. It's better to come behind all of that than to come before it. And in this sense, the least, the most insignificant in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. What we have here then is not really a comparison between John and another person because John will be in the kingdom. John will be resurrected and will be in the kingdom, right? So this is really not a comparison between John and another person. This is a comparison between the old covenant epic and the epic of the millennial kingdom. And there is no comparison There is no comparison to Christ on earth reigning and ruling with a rod of iron. Christ on earth proclaiming his word to the days of Moses or the days of Abraham or the days of Elijah or Elisha or Daniel or Isaiah. There is no comparison whatsoever from the old covenant to the fulfilled new covenant of the millennial kingdom. That's what Jesus is really saying here. That's what he's really implying But there is this nagging question. Why is the forerunner then in prison? And Jesus goes on to explain that in verse 12. Look at carefully with me at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, from days of John's first preaching in the wilderness, calling the nation to repent, from those very moments until this moment right now as Jesus speaks these words, the kingdom of heaven 
which he had come to offer. John had come to announce. Jesus had come to offer. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. This is Jesus' way of explaining why John is in prison. Now, there's a similar verse to this in Luke that has a positive connotation. This one is not positive. This is all negative. Okay? An entirely different interpretation. Jesus is explaining why the forerunner is about to lose his head. Okay? This is why. Because from the day that John opened his mouth, the kingdom of heaven has been opposed. It has been resisted. There has been hostility and persecution and violence. And violent, forceful, proud, self-righteous men want to take this kingdom by force. They want it for themselves. They want to self-rule. They want their own kingdom protected and enforced. That's what Jesus is saying. These willful men who will not bow to Christ, who will not listen to John the Baptist, who are instead seeking their own personal kingdom building and their own self-rule are stealing the kingdom from their own people. They are seizing it by force and they're not letting the Jewish people have their kingdom because as the leaders go, so go the people. And they're doing this with violence. And it's the worst kind of violence because it's cloaked in religious robes. That's the worst violence of all. I'd rather someone be totally open, right? An open book about their violence than to come in with the clerical collar and the religious robe hiding behind the mask hiding behind a mask of some type of godliness. And that's the nature of this violence. Jesus here then is really referring to Herod the Great who killed the babies to stop Jesus. That was a violent man trying to seize the kingdom by force. He's really referring to Herod Antipas who would behead John the Baptist for confronting him in his sin. He's really talking here about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests who would gather that fateful day and shout, crucify him, crucify him. These were violent men taking it by force as the kingdom of heaven suffering violence. And then he goes on in verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. He's referring here to the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, and he reverses the order. It's normally law and prophets. But here he says all the prophets in the law, and they prophesied because he wants us to see, catch this, he wants us to see the prophetic nature of the entire Old Testament. That from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, all the way to the last verse of Malachi, this body of 39 books is prophetic. It's pointing us and picturing and predicting the one who is to come. And he says here in verse 13, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. John is the great hinge in human history. John is the great hinge in redemptive history. He ends the old covenant and begins the new covenant. He is the last prophet and the forerunner. He is this great, great figure. And they all lead up to Him. And if you are willing to accept it, verse 14, if you are willing to believe it, John himself is Elijah who was, literally is, to come. Earlier, Jesus quoted Malachi 3.1. Now He refers to Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which says this. 
Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, big picture, he's making a claim to be Messiah. Here's the details. If, it's conditional, this is a conditional promise. If Israel will repent, if they will accept it, if they will receive it, then and only then John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and the kingdom of Christ would arrive because the Messiah is right behind him. This is what's at stake. This is what's being offered. And it's a conditional promise. But if they refuse John and his message, then they will also refuse Christ and his message. And the kingdom will be postponed until a future generation of Jews who will repent and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And when that generation does that, they will see the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Fulfillment was postponed and awaits a future generation of Jews. And what Jesus is doing here is he is connecting his forerunner to actual Old Testament messianic prophecies about the forerunner, making this second great claim to be the Messiah. You know, it occurred to me, I think this morning, that there were many prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah all those minor prophets, many prophets. And it also occurs to me that there were many priests, hundreds of priests, thousands of priests in Israel's history, even hundreds of high priests. And it occurs to me that Israel has had many, many kings, starting with King Saul and then King David and Solomon, Rehoboam and Hezekiah and all of these kings throughout the nation of Israel. But listen, there is one and only one Messiah. And as Messiah, He is prophet, priest, and king. He is all that we need because He is the anointed of God. I think our assumed result, as these men went back to John, was that John's doubts were destroyed by the word of Christ. John's doubts were dashed. And the greatest among men will go resolutely to the executioner's sword, resting his eternity on Jesus' claim to be the long-awaited Messiah. John will die with verse 5 echoing in his ears. The blind have received sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf ear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What else do I need to do to prove it? As the world unravels around us, what are you resting your eternity on? What are you resting your eternity on? It could come sooner than you think. There are no promises and no guarantees and no ironclad verses that say we are guaranteed peace, prosperity, and tomorrow. None. We're not in the kingdom. What are you resting your eternity on? What great claims do you trust in?
What great claims do you trust in? The claim of a doctor? The claim of the FDIC? The claim of a government to protect you and provide for you? The claim of a child or a spouse or a parent? What claims are you resting everything on? What do you believe in? That's the question we must face. What do you believe in? Let's pray. What a great foundation this is, our Father. As Jesus takes His authenticating signs and links them to Your infallible Word. And so we have the witness of John, and we have the witness of the Bible, and we have the witness of God the Father, and we have the witness of Jesus the Christ, all testifying to us that you and you alone are the anointed one. And now by faith in you and by following you and giving allegiance to you, we are little anointed ones, little Christians anointed by God the Holy Spirit to serve our Savior, to worship our King, to point others like John to the one who can satisfy and who can save. So I pray that uh, that's happened today, Lord, by Your Word. I pray that Your Word is finding a lodging in every heart. I pray that the Word of Christ would richly dwell within us and that we would highlight with our thoughts and our prayers and our faith that Jesus is Messiah. And I pray in His name. Amen.